nursing school. We are in the gastrointestinal section of MedSurge Nursing. The first disease process is gastroesophageal reflux disease. The symptoms are very miserable for people and it really affects quality of life. So you'll see heartburn, upset stomach, called dyspepsia, water brash, which is excessive saliva, regurgitation of food, um, coughing, hoarseness, and wheezing, dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing, odynophagia, which is painful swallowing, belching, flatulence, nausea, pyrosis, which is another word for heartburn, dental caries, epigastric pain, and globus, which is the sensation of having something stuck in your throat, even when nothing is there. The symptoms of GERD are all caused by acidic gastric contents damaging the esophagus due to an incompetent lower esophageal sphincter. And so the things that cause the lower esophageal sphincter to be incompetent could be anything from diet, a diet high in fatty foods, caffeine, chocolate, citrus, tomatoes, peppermint, alcohol, or foods that contain nitrates like lunch meats and hot dogs. Other causes are tobacco use, gastric distension, increased intra-abdominal pressure, someone with a hiatal hernia, an NG tube, and obesity. Um, also, it could just be the anatomy of an individual's lower esophageal sphincter, and then in people with high estrogen and progesterone. And to be diagnosed with GERD, a person would have these symptoms more than twice per week. Now I'll go over the complications that are possible with GERD. Next, um, they are going to be esophagitis, Barrett's esophagus, which is tissue damage that changes the color to a salmon color from the pink that it normally is. And with Barrett's esophagus, tissue changes come a higher risk of esophageal cancer. There can also be esophageal strictures, which are also called Schottsky's rings, where the esophageal tissue gets scarred from the exposure to the acid, and it kind of, kind of closes up a little bit. Uh, there's also the complication of hemorrhage and aspiration pneumonia from breathing in stomach contents. So with that weakened sphincter, um, while a person's lying down sleeping, they could breathe in what's coming up, and then that causes pneumonia. Basically, it's horrible that the part of your body that's supposed to handle this high acid pH of 4 or less suddenly becomes weak and unable to keep the stuff down and you're basically getting burned from your own insides. It's terrible. And then you lay down to go to sleep and you can literally inhale your cheeseburger and get pneumonia. It's terrible. So they do some tests. The diagnostic testing would be, they can do a 24 hour esophageal pH test where they stick a catheter with a sensor down through the nose into the esophagus. And you take that home for a day, self-record when you're having symptoms, um, and note, or in the sensor will tell 
the doctors, whether it's correlating with acid washing back up into the esophagus. There's also the Bravo 48-hour pH test where they place a device into the esophagus and it will send out signals and then you also track your symptoms for two days and then um, that device will eventually fall off and get pooped out. There's also esophageal manometry, which is a pressure test of the sphincter, the lower esophageal sphincter, to check how well it's working. And they can also do a barium swallow, which is where you swallow a radioactive drink and they can watch the progress of that drink down your digestive tract and they can check what the sphincters are doing with it as it goes. And then finally, there's the EGD, which is the esophago, oh my gosh, esophagogastroduodenoscopy, EGD. Um, basically, that combines the words esophagus, gastro, and duodenum with scopy, so basically looks like an upper endoscopy. And that is where they're going to take a look, basically, down there. And they can also do procedures with the endoscopy. And those would be, which I will talk about later, in the surgical management section. So now in the next section, I'm going to talk about what lifestyle changes are recommended to help patients with GERD. And they are losing weight, changing diet to avoid large meals, and decrease some of those foods that were triggers like caffeine, chocolate, citrus, tomatoes, peppermint, alcohol, and nitrate containing foods. And then recommending people wait three hours after a meal before they lie down. And then sleeping with an elevated head of the bed or a wedge pillow. Sleeping on their right side. Avoiding tight clothing or belts. And avoiding bending or stooping. Also, there are some drugs that might cause reflux, so just doing like a med review and making sure they're not taking something like that. Finally, this is where most people end up, which is drug therapy. Some drugs are very effective at handling GERD, and the goals for these drug therapies are to relieve the symptoms, of course, and then also allow the tissues to heal because... They can't heal if they're constantly being bathed in acid. So they're going to relieve the symptoms, promote healing, and then by doing that, they're going to prevent complications. Remember, the complications of GERD could be esophagitis, Barrett's esophagus, esophageal strictures, hemorrhage, and aspiration pneumonia. So what are these miracle drugs? I would say the miracle drugs are the proton pump inhibitors because they cause healing in 80 to 90% of patients. The brand names of these are Prilosec, Nexium, and Prevacid, which are very common. The generic names are Omeprazole, Ezomeprazole, Pentalprazole, and Lansalprazole. And so, of course, they all end in Azole. And what they do is they bind to the enzyme on parietal cells, which inhibits gastric acid production, and they are to be taken on an empty stomach before meals, about 30 to 45 minutes before eating. And these work 
um, not only when you're having symptoms. So patients on these need to take them every day. They can cause GI symptoms. The most common symptom is diarrhea, and they can also cause headaches. And they do interfere with calcium and magnesium absorption. So just make sure they're not taken with any other medication containing those that a patient might have. And unfortunately, along with needing to take them daily to prevent problems, if a patient stops taking PPIs abruptly, it can cause rebound symptoms of increased acid hypersecretion. So not recommended. And the next type of drugs are the histamine receptor antagonists. Um, these drugs also reduce gastric acid secretion, um, but they're only effective in 50% of patients. And the, these are also very common. The over-the-counter names you'll see are Pepsid, Zantac, and Tagamet. The generic names are Famotidine, ranitidine, and cimetidine. These are taken slightly different than PPIs. They are given with food and at bedtime. And caution should be used in people with impaired renal function. The side effects might cause cardiac dysrhythmias or central nervous system effects. And then the next group of drugs is antacids. And these are something that we've all heard of over-the-counter would be like Tums. Um, the, there are four different major types, aluminum, magnesium, calcium, or sodium compounds. And what they do is they neutralize the stomach acid. And they're useful for symptomatic relief of GERD. And they are taken on empty stomach. And they can cause diarrhea or constipation. Also, antacids interfere with other drugs taken for GERD, including the histamine receptor antagonists, also called H2 blockers, and then the next drug we're going to talk about, sucralfate. So they interfere with these two drugs, so antacids should be taken at least an hour apart from either H2 blockers or sucralfate. So this last category of drugs is just other drug therapies. Sucralfate is the first one. What it does is it's for healing existing erosions and ulcers in the stomach and esophagus and it coats them with a mucus layer that allows the tissues to heal without getting washed in acid. Another one is metoclopramide which is also known as Reglan. It's a anti-emetic but it promotes gastric emptying so that the acid passes through the stomach and isn't just sitting there. Bethanicol which increases the pressure for the lower esophageal sphincter, and it also increases esophageal and gastric emptying. Another effect of it, though, it does increase hydrochloric acid secretion. And then lastly, we're at surgery. So surgical management for GERD is for those patients who are not responding to medication treatments or might be on these medications for a very long time, or just people who choose to have surgery to deal with some of these things. Um, there are the Nissen fundiplication, which is a surgery where they wrap tissue from around the area of the lower esophageal sphincter to just give it reinforcement, and it can be done laparoscopically or open. And the adverse effects for Nissen fundiplication include chest pain or esophageal pain while swallowing. 
The other one is the Lynx procedure, which also is a reinforcement for the lower esophageal sphincter. And the Lynx procedure is laparoscopic, and basically they put a necklace of magnets around the sphincter area, which opens when the swallowing reflex happens and stays closed when it's just um, stomach contents kind of sloshing against it. And then lastly, the procedures that are done endoscopically to reduce the risk of cancer. That would be endoscopic mucosal resection for damaged tissue like Barrett's esophagus. Um, they can do photodynamic therapy or cryotherapy, which freezes off the damaged tissue, or radiofrequency ablation to destroy the damaged tissue with heat. And these are all done, again, to reduce the risk of cancer that comes with those damaged tissues in that area. Post-operative care for our patients who undergo any of these procedures would include monitoring their vital signs, respiratory assessment, encouraging deep breathing and use of incentive spirometer if indicated, taking accurate I's and O's, observing for electrolyte imbalances, pain management, giving medication if they're having nausea and vomiting, a GI assessment for their bowel sounds, and checking their skin, assessing the incisions for any surgical or laparoscopic surgery, um, making sure the gut is working, and then follow up the post-op orders to add fluids slowly, then solids, and a normal diet eventually. Other patient teaching at this time would include any recommended lifestyle changes and any medication management needed for their medications related to their GERD. Okay, the next process is hiatal hernia. Hiatal hernias have two types. They can be a sliding hiatal hernia or a paraesophageal hiatal hernia. And they're called hiatal because they are formed when part portions of the stomach comes through the hiatus of the diaphragm. And that's the muscle that separates the intra-abdominal cavity from the upper part. So the paraesophageal hiatal hernia is less common. And in that one, a pouch of stomach protrudes through the diaphragm muscle separately from the esophagus. And in the sliding hiatal hernia, the stomach tissue pushes up in the same area as the esophagus. So it'll push the esophagus up higher than it should be. So then you have the lower esophageal sphincter above the level of the diaphragm muscle and a portion of stomach above the level of the diaphragm muscle. The two types of hernias will have different clinical manifestations because their locations are different. So for the paraesophageal hernia, patients will experience a feeling of fullness after eating, breathlessness after eating, the feeling of suffocation, chest pain that mimics angina, and worsening manifestations in the recumbent position. People with sliding hiatal hernias will experience symptoms that make sense for the stomach encroaching on the area of the esophagus, like heartburn, regurgitation, dysphagia, and belching. And dysphagia, again, is difficulty swallowing. Complications of hiatal hernias include gastroesophageal reflux disease, esophagitis, ulcers, hemorrhaging, stenosis, which is artificial narrowing, strangulation of the hernia, obviously, and aspiration. The diagnostic tests for hiatal hernias 
are the same as with GERD, and they are the barium swallow or endoscopy, and hiatal hernias are often found incidentally when those two diagnostic tests are performed for symptoms. Management of hiatal hernias includes the conservative approach to just weight loss to reduce intra-abdominal pressure. And then the surgeries for hernias, the goals are to reduce the hernia, optimizing the lower esophageal sphincter's pressure and to prevent movement of the gastroesophageal junction. And those surgeries include herniotomy, herniorophy, fundoplication, and gastropexy. Our next topic is peptic ulcer disease. Peptic ulcer disease is the name for lesions that are created in the lower esophagus, in the stomach, or in the duodenum from the digestive actions of hydrochloric acid and pepsin that are normally um, active in the stomach. In peptic ulcer disease, though, these substances cause damage to the mucosa of the lining of the esophagus, stomach, and duodenum. And if we remember, the gut is a tube layered with mucosa, submucosa, muscularis, and the serosa. This is how the types of ulcers are classified. These range from erosion, which is just damage at the surface layer of the mucosa, and it can be an acute ulcer, which would be into the mucosa and the submucosa, and a chronic ulcer would be through all the layers, the mucosa, submucosa, and beginning to scar or go through the muscular tissue. Chronic ulcers are more common than acute erosions. The most common cause of peptic ulcer disease is the bacterium H. pylori, and there can be additional lifestyle or medication factors as well. So the differential features between duodenal ulcers and gastric ulcers. Um, for gastric ulcers, the patient will be malnourished because pain is worsened by food and by eating. Um, they won't be awakened by pain later on because it's kind of immediately during meals. And the pain is described as burning or gaseous pressure. And then for duodenal ulcers, the patient will be well-nourished because food doesn't cause the pain until two to five hours later, um, which makes sense because it's progressing down the GI tract. And then pain is actually relieved by eating food, and then it um, comes again two to five hours after the meals, and it can awaken them at night. And the pain is described as burning or cramp-like. And NSAID use is responsible for most ulcers that are not H. pylori caused, although the combination of H. pylori with NSAID use and corticosteroids or anticoagulants increase the risk. High alcohol intake is associated with acute mucosal lesions, and caffeine is a strong stimulant of gastric acid secretion. Something I didn't think about or wouldn't have thought is that duodenal ulcers account for 80% of all peptic ulcers. So they're much more common than the gastric ulcers. And they can occur at any age, but especially between 35 and 45 years of age. To diagnose peptic ulcer disease, they would do an EGD with biopsy because they want to rule out stomach cancer. 
They would test for the H. pylori bacterium, barium contrast studies, gastric analysis, um, doing CBC to check liver enzymes and serum amylase, and stool tests. The stool test would check for occult blood to indicate that the ulcers are bleeding. The treatment for peptic ulcer disease includes antibiotics for the H. pylori and drug therapy with proton pump inhibitors to allow the mucosa to heal. Also, we would want to have the patient do some lifestyle modifications and cut down on caffeine and other irritants, as well as reduce stress and make a plan for long-term follow-up. The drug therapy for H. pylori is called triple therapy because it's typically the combination of a PPI and two antibiotics that would be metronidazole and tetracycline or clarithromycin and amoxicillin. Those are the four antibiotics. In addition, a person with peptic ulcer disease would have probably some pain, so pain management would be important, and the cytoprotective drugs like sucralfate, which gives a barrier so that the mucosa is protected from the acid. Surgical management of peptic ulcer disease includes subtotal gastrectomy, where they just remove part of the stomach um, in the area that's likely to have the ulcers, or pyloroplasty, which is to enlarge the pyloric sphincter area because if you have ulcers there, it can cause uh, strictures and stenosis. Or the last one is vagotomy, where they sever portions of the vagal nerve that goes to the stomach, which decreases acid production in that area. The first complication is hemorrhage, and that's because the lesions can erode right down into the blood vessel area, and it can be pretty severe. Um, the next one would be perforation, where the erosion goes right through the stomach tissue into the abdominal cavity, and that can cause peritonitis. Um, the signs of this complication would be severe upper abdominal pain that spreads throughout the entire abdomen, tachycardia, weak pulse, rigid board-like abdominal muscles, rapid respirations, and completely absent bowel sounds. The last complication is gastric outlet obstruction where the pyloric sphincter might have strictures or in that area where the stomach contents leave into the duodenum is blocked and what will happen is the pain worsens towards the end of the day as their stomach gets full they can get relief by belching or vomiting and it's very common to have vomiting constipation loud peristalsis and swelling in the upper abdomen for nurses the main goal is to prevent issues so we would talk to patients who might be at risk due to the drugs they're taking and make sure that they know to report gastric symptoms to their healthcare provider. When we are doing nursing care for patients with peptic ulcer disease, they might have NG tube, they might be NPO, and they could have IV fluid replacements. Um, they might have IV PPIs. They might be on bed rest. In the case of a serious complication, they might be having blood transfusions or stomach lavage. 
Geriatric considerations include the fact that many geriatric patients will be on NSAIDs, um, aspirin or ibuprofen, and that increases the risk of peptic ulcer disease. And then for all populations, patient teaching is really important because ulcers often recur. So they'll need to be taught about lifestyle modifications, drug uh, adherence so that they take their medication because PPIs are effective if taken daily. They're not effective if you take it when you're feeling symptoms. And then they also need to know that they have to follow up with symptoms and with their provider. The normal doses for PPIs are 20 to 40 milligrams two times a day because of the growing number of antibiotic-resistant organisms, a growing number of patients do not have H. pylori eradicated with a single round of antibiotic therapy, unfortunately. Moving on to the lower GI alterations, IBS and IBD uh, might get confused, but IBS is a functional disorder, which means it doesn't have a physiological, pathological disease process that you can see, but it has functional symptoms that are experienced by the patients. What it is basically is intermittent abdominal pain or discomfort and stool pattern irregularities. That can be constipation IBS or diarrhea IBS. Other disorders that are common in people with IBS include anxiety, panic disorder, depression, PTSD, and a history of abuse. Diagnosis of IBS is done by ruling out other conditions. Treatment of IBS focuses on psychological therapies to help people cope with their other symptoms of anxiety, PTSD, stress, etc. And that includes acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy, and hypnosis. And then there's also drug management to manage the symptoms of pain and to regulate the output. So things like Imodium and antidepressants, antidiarrheals. Also dietary factors include the low FODMAP diet, which eliminates foods that tend to ferment and irritate. Um, that includes lactose, excess fructose, gluten, and polyols, um, oligosaccharides like wheat and rye products, onions, garlic, legumes, and nuts. And for IBS, there is a protocol for diagnosing it. It's called the Rome 5 criteria, and it requires the presence of abdominal pain and or discomfort at least one day per week for three months associated with two or more of the following defecation, change in stool frequency, or change in stool form. There are categories for IBS. There is IBS with constipation, IBS with diarrhea, IBS mixed, and IBS unsubtype. Other symptoms of IBS include abdominal distension, flatulence, bloating, urgency, mucus in the stool, sensation of incomplete evacuation, and non-GI symptoms of fatigue, headache, and sleep problems. Men are more likely to have IBS with diarrhea and less likely to seek treatment for it. Women are more likely to have IBS by two to two and a half times more, and they're more likely to have the IBS with constipation version. They also report more severe pain in the abdomen, gas, and bloating. Some of the differential disorders that are ruled out to diagnose IBS are IBD, colorectal cancer, endometriosis, and malabsorption disorders like lactose intolerance or celiac disease. Probiotics can improve the symptoms as well as drug therapies. Next is appendicitis. 
The appendix is located just off the cecum, which is the beginning of the large intestine, and appendicitis is when the appendix gets inflamed or infected. If the appendix ruptures, it can cause peritonitis. Um, but before that, the manifestations of appendicitis are typically dull, peri-umbilical pain, anorexia, nausea, and vomiting. And then the persistent pain will be in the right lower quadrant at McBurney's point, which is between the iliac right iliac crest and the umbilicus. Um, they will have fever, localized tenderness, rigidity, rebound tenderness, muscle guarding, and it most often occurs in those who are between the ages of 10 and 30. The fever is usually mild to moderate, and if it's an older adult, they'll be in less pain, they'll have a slight fever. If the pain suddenly is relieved, that would be an indicator that it might have ruptured. Diagnostics for appendicitis would be a good health history and physical, CPC, urinalysis, ultrasound, and CT. We might see elevated white blood count in the CBC. Urinalysis would be to rule out a UTI. Ultrasound would show an enlarged appendix, but the CT scan is the gold standard diagnostic for this. Surgical management would be an appendectomy to remove the appendix and avoid rupture in peritonitis. The surgery could be laparoscopic or open, and antibiotics and fluids will be started as they go into surgery. Nursing management of a patient with appendicitis. Pre-op, you would be giving IV fluids and pain relief, preventing complications by keeping them in PO, monitoring their vital signs, and administering antiemetics if they're nauseous. Postoperatively, you do general post-op care, early ambulation, advance their diet as tolerated, and continue the IV antibiotics. Okay, after appendicitis, we're going on to intestinal obstruction. So there are a bunch of different ways to categorize these obstructions. They can be mechanical or non-mechanical. Mechanical means that there's something blocking the lumen. Non-mechanical means there's some kind of disturbance. It's vascular or muscular that's stopping. Intestinal obstructions can also be simple or strangulated. Strangulated means there's no blood supply. Simple has an intact blood supply. There also could be partial or complete. Partial obstructions do not completely occlude the intestinal lumen, which allows some fluid and gas to pass through, and they can be usually resolved with conservative treatment. A complete obstruction usually requires surgery. These also occur in both the small or large intestine. In mechanical obstruction, there's a physical blockage. Most intestinal obstructions occur in the small intestine. Surgical adhesions are the most common cause of small bowel obstructions, and they can occur within days or years of the surgeries. Other causes of small bowel obstructions are hernia, cancer, strictures from Crohn's disease, and intussusception after bariatric surgery. The most common cause of large bowel obstruction is colorectal cancer, which is malignant obstruction, followed by diverticular disease. Other causes can include adhesions, ischemia, volvulus, and Crohn's disease. Non-mechanical obstruction occurs with reduced or absent peristalsis due to altered neuromuscular transmission. It occurs to some degree after any abdominal surgery, and it can be hard to know whether it's due to a paralytic ileus or adhesions after surgery. So 
one clue is that bowel sounds usually return before post-op adhesions develop. Other causes of par paralytic ileus include peritonitis, inflammatory responses like acute pancreatitis, acute appendicitis, electrolyte abnormalities, especially hypokalemia, and thoracic or lumbar spinal fractures. Pseudo-obstruction is another non-mechanical obstruction, but it has no cause found on radiologic imaging. It's a GI motility disorder and could be associated with major surgery, electrolyte imbalance, neurologic conditions, medications, sepsis, cancer, trauma, and burns. Vascular obstructions are the last non-mechanical and they are rare. They are the result of an interference with the blood supply to part of the intestines. It's most commonly caused by emboli and atherosclerosis of the mesenteric arteries. They can also originate from thrombi in patients who have chronic AFib, diseased heart valves, or prosthetic valves. Venous thrombosis may occur in conditions of low blood flow like heart failure and shock. The pathophysiology of blockages. The intestinal contents accumulate, the abdomen becomes distended, the gut attempts to pass it by increasing peristalsis and increasing secretions, which builds up creating bowel edema and increased capillary permeability. The muscle of the intestine gets fatigued. There's decreased absorption of fluids and electrolytes, which causes hypovolemia and electrolyte imbalances and ultimately shock. In the most dangerous situation, the bowel becomes so distended that blood flow stops, which causes edema, cyanosis, and gangrene of a bowel segment. And this is called intestinal strangulation or intestinal infarction. If not quickly corrected, the bowel becomes necrotic and ruptures, leading to infection, septic shock, and death. The location of the obstruction determines the extent of fluid, electrolyte, and acid-base imbalances. And it also determines the manifestations. So the small bowel location will have a rapid onset, large intestine will have a gradual onset, vomiting will be frequent and copious for the proximal small bowel, less frequent for the distal small bowel, and late or absent for large intestinal blockage. If the obstruction is up high in the upper duodenum, the metabolic acidosis might result from the loss of hydrochloric acid through vomiting or in in G tube suctioning. And when the obstruction is in the small intestine, dehydration occurs rapidly. Dehydration and electrolyte imbalances don't really occur early in the large bowel obstruction. If it's below the proximal colon, solid fecal material accumulates until the symptoms of discomfort start to appear. The four hallmark clin clinical manifestations of an obstruction are abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, distension, and constipation. And the order and degree these appear vary by the cause, location, and type of obstruction. So pain is usually the first symptom. And in the small bowel, the pain will be suddenly onset. It will be more gradual for the large. Um, vomiting from a more distal small bowel obstruction is more gradual on, in onset. And it smells more fecal and more foul. Um, if it's a higher obstruction... It'll be projectile vomiting and may contain bile. Bowel sounds are usually absent with a paralytic ileus, but you will have high-pitched bowel sounds above the area of obstruction in other types of obstructions. With both types of 
obstruction, abdominal tenderness and rigidity occur, and the patient appears acutely ill with signs of dehydration and sepsis like tachycardia, dry mucous membranes, and hypotension, their temperature might rise above 100 degrees. Diagnosis would depend on a thorough history and physical examination. Imaging can identify an obstruction. Um, X-rays, CT scan, or contrast enema may be done. They might do endoscopy, sigmoidoscopy, or colonoscopy to directly visualize a large bowel obstruction. Blood tests could include a CPC and blood chemistries. A high white blood cell count might mean strangulation or perforation. You might be looking for electrolyte imbalances. And treatment depends on the cause of the obstruction. If there's perforation or strangulation, there will need to be emergency surgery, resection of the obstruction with anastomosis, or a partial or total colectomy or ileostomy, and they will have a stoma. Sometimes the obstruction can be removed non-surgically. With a colonoscopy, you can remove polyps, dilate strictures, and remove and destroy tumors with a laser. Nursing assessment for these patients would be patient history, physical exam. We would see severe abdominal pain, abdominal distension, vomiting, maybe with fecal content, dehydration, constipation, and abnormal bowel sounds that might be high-pitched or absent. The nursing interventions would be monitor fluid, fluid and electrolytes and acid-base balance, pain management with analgesia and positioning, providing a restful environment, post-operative care similar to laparotomy, NG tube care, and oral care. All right, our next process is diverticulosis. They are pouch-like herniations on the wall of the colon. They're most often found in the sigmoid colon. The main factor is not enough fiber. Other factors would be obesity, inactivity, smoking, excess alcohol use, and the use of NSAIDs. Diverticulitis is the inflammation or infection of one of the diverticulum. So there is a potential for perforation, abscess, bleeding, and peritonitis with diverticulitis. Most diverticulosis is asymptomatic, could have some flatulence, bloating, bleeding, abdominal pain. With diverticulitis, there's acute pain in the left lower quadrant, distension, decreased or absent bowel sounds, nausea and vomiting, and systemic symptoms of infection. Diagnosis can be done with x-ray looking for free air or fluid indicating perforation, CT scan, barium enema, which would be after acute phase, colonoscopy would be after acute phase, and then CBC, which would show elevated white blood cells. Prevention is key, high fiber diet, decreased fat and red meat, physical activity. Acute diverticulitis would indicate clear liquids, bed rest, and pain relief. If it was severe with systemic infection or comorbidities, they might be admitted to the hospital and be NG, or have an NG tube, be NPO, bed rest, IV fluid, and antibiotics. Recurring diverticulitis could indicate a resection to remove part of the colon with either anastomosis or a temporary colostomy until it heals. 